Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, University of Minnesota Extension Nader and Field Crops, along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension Soybean Specialist. And Seth, we're into January of 2024. I didn't know if we'd make it, but here we are nonetheless. And uh, we're, we're still on the air with University of Minnesota CropCast. And we're going to start off with a bang, I think. You know, we didn't have New Year's, but we have our our lead hitter, so to speak, uh, coming out from the um, uh, Department of Agronomy here. And we actually have an opportunity to visit with Dr. Rex Bernardo. He's from the University of Minnesota uh, Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics. He's a professor in uh, corn breeding and genetics. And I want to say welcome. Uh, first of all, here to the uh, podcast, right? Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us a little bit about the program here. Uh, you've been at the University of Minnesota a number of years, but let's go back in time a little bit and talk about uh, your uh, education, uh, where you first, uh, um, in terms of developed your interest in, in corn and in other genetics and so forth. But Maybe go back to the beginning in terms of where you went to school uh, and how you came to the University of Minnesota. Well, thanks. I was born and raised in the Philippines, and uh, my both my parents were in the academe. My father was actually a plant breeder, and my mother an entomologist specializing in host plant resistance to insect pests. And they never pressured me to go into agriculture, but they would talk shop, and we'd have books at home, and i go, wow, this is quite an interesting field. And that's how, how I started studying agriculture and plant breeding specifically. I obtained my bachelor's degree in the Philippines on, in a college that's right in an island, and our house was, oh, 200 yards from the beach itself, from the water. And you walk to the other side and you see mountains. And I got my undergrad degree there, started working on a sweet potato breeding program. So I was a sweet potato breeder before I became a corn breeder. Then decided to go to graduate school in the United States was the most logical and I thought best choice. So I started applying to different schools in the U.S. I ended up at the University of Illinois and got there. And instead of beaches and mountains, I saw corn and soybean and acres and acres and acres of it. And I go, okay, I'm not in the Philippines anymore. I got my PhD degree at the University of Illinois. And then I started working for a private company, Limagrain, right at the outskirts of Urbana-Champaign in East Central Illinois. I worked there for nine years, then decided to switch careers. All this while I had in mind that I might wanna do some teaching, become a professor. And an opportunity opened up at Purdue University, so I was at Purdue University for three years. And then decided, well, I was recruited to the University of Minnesota. And I've been here since the year 2000, so 24 years now, almost 24 years. It's been quite a ride. It's been, I've enjoyed my work in all the places I've worked. And it's been a privilege to work in this area of plant improvement in corn specifically, but also branching out or getting involved in some way in other crops. I um, thanks for thanks for coming in today, Rex. Um, I uh, I'm really excited about our conversation here today. Um, I uh, am really interested to hear about 
corn breeding specifically, uh, because from the very beginning, uh, we, when, when you were hired, and I was actually here already, uh, when you were hired, you came in and you made it clear that you were going to be a modern corn breeder and, and, and look at things a little bit different than some of our historical crop breeding uh, at the university. And so maybe, maybe walk back 23 years and, and tell us what, why you came to some of those um, conclusions about public corn breeding and, and how that first, um, maybe, maybe part of your um, experience with in the private sector, how that informed you about what a public corn breeder like yourself might have the most, how, how they could have the most impact, I guess, is the question. My time in the seed industry has always colored all of the research that I do. In fact, a wonderful friend and colleague at Purdue University once said, Rex, we can take you out of the seed industry, but we can never take the seed industry out of you. And I think there's some truth to that even today. When I interviewed at the University of Minnesota and I was hired here in St. Paul, I was specifically told that I should not be breeding any corn. They said, we don't want you to develop any lines or hybrids. And in a way that poses an existentialist kind of question to a corn breeder in a university setting because you start thinking, well, if I'm not going to breed any corn, what am I going to do? And I decided that perhaps I would have the most impact if I focus on two things. And one would be graduate student education and training. And the second would be doing kinds of research that would be meaningful to the breeders, mainly in the private sector, who are actually developing the parental lines of the corn hybrids that farmers would be doing today. So if I were to describe the type of research that I am doing, I would call it as better ways to breed better corn. In essence, trying to determine with all the new technologies that we have at our disposal today, how can we use these new technologies and develop breeding schemes that would lead us, that would lead to better ways to breed better corn. If you think of corn breeding today and breeding in many crop species, it's like a factory, really, where in a factory setting, well, you have a manufacturing process, you have, well, you have a design process, first of all, then you have a manufacturing process, and then you have a quality control, and then you have release of a product, some widget, whatever that product is. In the same way, really, is in corn breeding that you start with a design in mind, well, what are my breeding objectives? Then there's sort of a manufacturing process in corn breeding in which the breeders would develop the parental lines and then cross them to have different kinds of hybrids. And there, there's a testing process involved like in any, any industrial process. And in the end, there's a product release. And a key difference, of course, is that instead of working with steel or wood or plastic, well, you're working with a biological material. And you cannot quite control the entirety of how cells divide and how gametes are formed, and yet much, still much of that process, I think, we have a fair bit of control today. So again, just, just to, to wrap this rather lengthy answer, it really is looking at corn breeding as a process, sort of a manufacturing process, and trying to see how can we optimize this, pro this process to the, to the best extent possible. 
Beautiful. I I uh, I love I love the description. I think that uh, the manufacturing analogy I think is a really good one uh, that helps me understand things a lot better for sure. Uh, but even um, you know for for some of us that are um, are ignorant to the the details of this, I, I I think about in my mind I think about corn breeding as the the art of you know making these crosses and and finding these. Um, these plant types that that are suitable for you, and then and then moving those through the system. And I know there was a lot of advancement beyond beyond this very crude way that I, I've described. But you're a real um, early um, founder or a early early um, um, pioneer in this area of of genomic selection. Is is that fair to say in, in corn especially? I think that is fair to say. It's been a uh wonderful journey working in that area for a few decades now. And, and um, when you started in this area looking, instead of selecting by this visual plant type and actually looking at the genes, did you, did you think that this was, um, you know, the far future or did you, was this an incremental um, um, kind of a discovery that you made along the way that that informed you that this was this is the way that corn breeding was going to eventually move to in the future is 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 through looking at actually looking at those genes directly. I think I I wasn't that broad, uh, far-sighted back then, so I started working on in this procedure in 1994. Wow, that's a long time now. But let me take even a, a step back and see and tell you how it fits in the context of breeding. I like to liken breeding, plant breeding in any species, it's like a game of survivor. Many of us are familiar with a survivor reality series in which you have, I don't know, 25 contestants? I've never never really watched the show. But then these 25 contestants are, they go through a series of tests. And then from 25, the numbers decrease until in the end, you only have one winner, one survivor, and that's the champion. And plant breeding really is, in a way, it's like one huge big game of survivor. But instead of having 25 candidates, you could have, oh, thousands of candidates, thousands of individuals. And these individuals, they come from different families. And so if you're one individual, you'd be competing with your brothers and sisters and cousins and just a whole set of individuals. And instead of having survival skills in the wild, well, plant breeders would determine which are the best candidates just by a series of screens. So the first screening would be, you know, maybe from, let's, if you start with 2,000, maybe from 2,000, you pair that down to, let's say, 500. And then 500 to maybe 200, 200 to 100, to 50, to 20, to 10, to 5, and to 1. And in each of these screens, they become more and more intense, and we, be, we begin to use more and more information. And part of this information could be performance out in the field. It could be how the plants react to a disease in a greenhouse. And it could be wide testing, growing the corn or soybean in 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 locations, seeing how they perform. Or it could be looking at DNA markers. And so DNA markers, they are, they are DNA fingerprints. They just tell us differences in the DNA of, of the individuals. And, and the way I try to explain genomic selection is 
trying to first see how do dairy farmers, how do dairy breeders evaluate the milk performance of a dairy bull? And as we know, a dairy bull does not produce any milk, but it has genes either for good milk production or poor milk production that would pass on to its female progeny. And the way breeders, dairy breeders, evaluate the milk potential of a dairy bull is they look at the performance of the relatives. They look at the mother, the half-sister, the female cousin. They weight all that information and then make a prediction of how much this bull would yield in terms of milk yield if it had the physiological, physical capacity to produce milk. And again, a key point is having these data on the relatives, but also knowing how much information to weight. So more information is given to the mother's performance than to a cousin's performance just because of the closer relatedness. And so we can look at relatedness based on pedigree, but a more accurate way is to look at DNA markers. And essentially, that's what genomic prediction does. You look at data on relatives, you look at you look at DNA fingerprints to estimate how related are these relatives to the individual we're interested in, then we create a prediction model and then we proceed accordingly. So now it is not uncommon that individuals, corn, soybean, wheat, would be selected without initially even without any field data. Just because you had a bunch of field data from prior years and marker data, DNA fingerprint data has become so cheap these days. In corn, it's about, oh, six, seven, eight times cheaper than evaluating in the field. So this changes the playing game because now with cheaper marker data and more expensive field data, then we try to emphasize marker data quite a bit more than field testing as in the past. For sure. I, it's, there's so many parallels to other, uh, you had a nice analogy with, with manufacturing earlier. And I think what you're describing is a lot of what we're looking at, even societal wise. And I think the one that comes to mind, obviously, is AI, because everybody's talking about AI and, and the investments that have been made in AI. Um, and in some ways, there's a lot of direct parallels, but I think there's there's indirect parallels as well. Is that we've, as a society, we've invested in, in data, um, and a lot of scientists have told us for years how valuable data was, and a lot of us thought, well, let's prove it to me. And I I think that you're one of those that has has now begun to to prove it to us, and 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 has really helped help show the value of it, and and. Along with it, as you mentioned, the, the economy of that switchover has also benefited um, the technology. And I think that wasn't an accident that you knew that, that genotyping was going to become less expensive over time. Because well, I, I actually did not know that. <laughs> I, I, I was convinced by others that I need to think into the future of how the technology and how the cost would change. Uh, because I, I did not know that. To your point, Seth, about data. Yes, when I was with the seed industry, our data, we, we, we'd run our yield trials, and then we'd have the data in these large 11 by 17 tractor feed dot matrix printouts. And we'd look at the data, and then we'd use those data only to make decisions, selection decisions on this trial. Then after that, those decisions were made, well, those data, those sheets were put on a shelf, right? And, and our thinking has changed because now we look at data 
not only for the here and now, but we look at data, how can we use these data, how can we leverage these data for other purposes in, in the future? And, and talking about technology, it was actually my PhD professor who told me to think of how changes in the cost of DNA fingerprinting might change the way we do things. My first experience in DNA fingerprinting is our advisor called us to the field, said, Rex, we're going to collect leaf samples for DNA analysis today. And so we were out there sampling corn leaves by hand. And then the corn leaves were put in a cooler. They were driven to the local airport in Champaign, Illinois, where there was a chartered plane waiting to take those samples to a lab in Ankeny, Iowa. And I said, my goodness, if, I, if we need to charter a plane each time, this is really, really expensive technology. How can this work? But my advisor told me, no, Rex, you need to think of the day when the cost of a data point for a DNA fingerprint is about the cost of a paperclip we use to pollinate corn to, to attach the bag on the tassel. And in my mind that day, again, that's never going to happen. But we are beyond that point today where the cost of a data point is cheaper than the cost of a paperclip. And so you know, to your point, yes, we, we, we're in the here and now, and oftentimes we look at the new development, we look at the new technology, and my immediate reaction is to see how things are now, and I've had to train myself over the years. Okay, I need to be a bit more futuristic and think in the future, how might this be a game changer in the way that we do plant breeding? Well, I, I've always thought of you as a futurist, and so I, um, I appreciate um, your humility and, and explaining that you, you may not have always thought of yourself in that way, but I, we've, we've, always, we've seen that here in the department. I've, I've certainly noticed that in the department and, and the way you look at, at your projects. Um, tell us, as, as long as we're talking about um, other stuff. Um, you've had some forays into other breeding. You've, you've worked with some horticulture folks and you've, uh, you've, you've brought your experience into some other, other crops as well. Is that, is that true? That is correct. I've worked with others more in a collaborative fashion, obviously, but I was involved with a big USDA project on breeding rosaceous species, such as apple, uh, such as strawberry, peach, and I learned a lot. I mean, I think my experience in sweet potato helped me because sweet potato being an asexually propagated species and the way you breed corn and sweet potato or apple are, are, are quite different. And so that helped me. And that was a wonderful opportunity to learn about challenges in plant breeding uh, in other spe species other than corn. And as I mentioned, corn is kind of like a manufacturing process not so much with other species, horticultural uh, species. Um, I've started working with some students on breeding some vegetables here uh, on campus. So again, learning about different plant species uh, has been a wonderful experience. I mean, plants are amazing, aren't they? To me, I, I'm not, I never cease to be amazed that plants let you know, they, they, they require relatively little care and they take energy from the sun and water from the soil and nutrients and and they, they take the air and they produce useful things. And if we could manufacture, if we could create an artificial plant that would be, if anybody would create an artificial plant that would be so efficient, 
that person would probably get a Nobel Prize. But then you think, well, why do so when we have already natural plants to do many amazing things? I've, I've, I've got lots of questions. I'd like to go a lot of different directions, but I, this might be a good opportunity to talk about your sweet corn. Ah, yes. Tell us, tell us about your sweet corn and how you, how you arrived at that particular uh, idea and, um, and tell us the opportunities that it's provided for you. Yes, I've been working on a sweet corn that I have dubbed gopher corn. Gopher corn because it has maroon and gold kernels, obviously maroon and gold, gold being the colors of the University of Minnesota. It started out as a little science project with my youngest son. My youngest son has autism spectrum disorder, and so I said, I need to find a kind of science project that is tangible, that he can relate to. And he's a big sports fan too. So we started working on this gopher corn, well, on sweet corn, and I figured, we figured, well, what's another yellow or bicolor corn? That, that w wouldn't mean a thing. So I said, David, let's start working on developing a sweet corn, one with a Minnesota Vikings colors, purple and gold, and two with a gopher colors, which is maroon and gold. And in the end, we were more successful with breeding the maroon and gold. And so we, that's what we have is now a maroon and gold corn. And I found that this has been a wonderful vehicle for visibility as well as public education. So I've started using, having gopher corn UPIC days last year. Yes, I could say last year now where I invited the public to come and I'll talk to them about plant breeding, how, it is, how it's done in general, why it's important. I showed them the maroon and gold parent, really puny looking, and how when you cross these two, you get a hybrid that is actually vigorous. And then the, the, the folks who come get to pick their own gopher corn and bring them home with them. And so it's been a wonderful tool uh, for visibility. The university president has tasted a few ears. Some bo Board of Regents members have had a few ears. And so, again, it, it's nothing. This product is nothing compared to, say, an important wheat variety or soybean variety or apple variety. However, I see it as sort of a mascot for plant breeding work that I'm, I'm, I'm learning about communication and, well, you, you have to have a story and something that people would easily re relate to, and that's what I'm finding out about this gopher corn. Beautiful. Beautiful. So um, I, as long as we're kind of on this education angle, let's, uh, I want to hear a little bit about your teaching career and, and uh, some of the historical courses that you've taught as well as some of the newer um, courses that you've developed in the, in the last couple of years. Well, thank you, Seth. As I mentioned, teaching was a, and is, was a reason that I decided to switch from an industry career to an academe, academic career. And when I was hired, I was given responsibility to teach an advanced plant breeding course. So one of the courses I teach is an advanced plant breeding course for masters and PhD students. And typically it would be perhaps the last plant breeding course that, uh, taken by our students. So we go into, into details of how to design and implement a breeding program for corn, for soybean, for apple, for other species. Then over the years, I've thought of other courses that I could teach. And one year, I, just, I asked my former students, what are things 
you wish we taught you in graduate school, but we did not. And the answers were quite interesting because they were not technical things. They were things like, how do I make a budget? How do I deal with conflict? Um, how do I run a meeting? Um, so th- how, how can I communicate with different audiences? And so soft skills that are vital for professionals and scientists to function well in today's modern workplace. So I developed a course called Professional Skills for Scientists. Uh, we start out looking at the life cycle. I call it the life cycle of a scientist, of how one starts out depending on others, then contributing independently, then contributing through others, and then perhaps towards the end providing leadership to the institution. We talk about personal differences, how one is wired differently from another person, and I use the Strengths Finder assessment and to, to great effect, actually, if I may say so, because it opens these eyes of students, oh, this is why my office mate or my lab mate works in a different way or, or thinks, sees, things, sees things differently the way I do. We talk into managing your boss, managing employees, hiring, making budgets, communication. Again, a whole suite of, non, of uh, professional skills that are needed. And then we were asked last year to consider teaching at the undergraduate level, so I developed a new freshman seminar course called Coffee from the Ground Up. And so this is looking at coffee as a vehicle for introducing college freshmen to food and agriculture. We talk about the history, geography, culture. We do a lot of brewing experiments. Uh, There's a brewing competition judged by a panel, and so we declare who the winner is. And so I've taught it one more one time, and it's been a fun course to teach, and I look forward to teaching it again. So again, the, the theme there is you're using coffee similar to your, you know, your gopher corn. In as, a way, yes, yes. As a, as a way to, to just start the conversation. Um, beautiful. I, I, I really... I, you should come sometime. I, <laughs> I <would laughs> you love, and Dave. <laughs> I would love to. And I, I, what I really like of, about your um, your teaching philosophy is that you're willing to take on courses that, that may be uncomfortable for you. And, um, you know, I think the reason why we don't have a lot of courses on communication for scientists is because all of us are such bad communicators that uh, we're, 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 most of us are unwilling to try to, um, to stand in front of students and, and, and help them with things like that. So oh, I, Seth, I really, I, yeah. really appreciate that you're willing to... Uh, to go out and, and take one for the team, I think. You know, I'm a, I'm a coffee aficionado, but for this course, I actually had to take some online courses to learn about coffee. But talking about communication, I, I've trained myself to watch uh, some seminars I give once in a while. In the early days, I would cringe because I'd see myself doing this and that, and i go, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And you're unconscious doing it, of course. Well, we certainly... Uh want to also talk to you a little bit about uh, yourself in terms of that. You, we understand that uh, you hold what's called, in a university setting, an endowed chair. So for our audience, we'll have to explain a little bit about that. We're not talking about an office chair in your office, but an endowed chair. And then also your capacity as a director of the uh, University of Minnesota Plant Breeding Center. And, and third, I'm just going to throw this out so I don't forget, I think you've also had an opportunity to help author some textbooks. So if you can remember those three things, let's go through those. Well, you might have to, I might have to ask you again, but what was the first one again? (laughs) The chair you're in. Ah, endowed chair, yes, yes. Well, when 
Before I came, when the professor of corn breeding and genetics retired, the position essentially was not filled by the college. That was my understanding. And do you remember who that was? Uh, it was uh, John Gettleman, then it John passed Gettleman, on yes, to, yes. to Bob Stucker, right. I believe. Uh-huh. And so after that, a group of industry lead, uh, leaders in the corn seed industry here in Minnesota, it was back then, it was uh, Pioneer Hybrid and Northrop King. They, dis- they, 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 got, they organized themselves and they said, it is not right that the University of Minnesota would not have a professor of, of breeding and genetics for the most important crop in the state of Minnesota in terms of economic value. So they got together and they put their, their money behind what they wanted to do and essentially contributed to a fund. Each of these companies contributed to a fund, which is an endowment. So there's an endowment. It earn, earns interest. And it helps support uh, the position. And so really, uh, that's all it is. It's Again, it's, it's, a, it's a large fund, and the proceeds uh, help support the position. And we're seeing, I think, in this day and age of uh, less, less and less support from the public or from the state, we're seeing more and more endowed chairs or endowed professorships come to the fore. Your second question had to do with the Plant Breeding Center. So the Plant Breeding Center was formed during the pandemic, and the objective of the center is to elevate plant improvement in Minnesota and beyond. The thought is that we certainly have had a strong history and ongoing effort in plant improvement in many species. And yet, we could do better in terms of having a one-stop place, so to speak, for communication, for visibility, for collaboration. And so the goal of the Plant Breeding Center is to elevate plant breeding in Minnesota and beyond through enhancing collaboration among plant breeders on campus, as well as collaboration between plant breeders on campus and outside the university, uh, enhancing uh, building community, community building among our plant breeders here, professors, students, uh, and postdocs, continuing education, as we have talked about, there's a lot of new developments in the field. And so there's a need for continuing education of professionals as well as students in other universities, particularly in places where they might not have the same amount of expertise that we are blessed here at Minnesota. And the last is promotion and visibility. And so it's been a pleasure to work with the faculty in plant breeding, graduate students in plant breeding who have been very engaged in this group effort to build this plant breeding center to uh, elevate, again, elevate plant breeding on campus and beyond. And over the years, I've also authored two textbooks. And I'd like to say, and it's true, that I wrote the first textbook because I was a lazy lecturer. And I said, okay, if I'm looking at a 20-plus some career at the university, I don't want to be saying the same thing year after year after year. So I said, maybe I can write a textbook and tell the students, okay, for a class tomorrow, read pages 30 to 40 of the textbook, and we're going to discuss it. And that's, in a way, how I've conducted my class over the years. And little did I know that eventually that's what's called a flipped classroom format. Of course, now with a flipped classroom, that's not a textbook, but you'd have probably videos or or audio clips, but the same principle that you do a lot of your uh, lecture, quote, 
quote unquote, and then you do your homework actually when you get to the classroom. So I'll, I'll wrap kind of all of these things up into one. I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your experience. You've, you've done a number of, um, of sabbatical type, um, um, visiting scientist roles, visiting professor roles, uh, throughout mostly in Europe. Is that right? That is correct. Over time. Um, but you also do quite a bit of education through the Plant Breeding Center and, and other vehicles uh, to do teaching. Uh, and you're continuing to work with industry. So I don't have a very f- formal question for you, but I guess I, I admire that you have all of these connections uh, globally and both with industry and, and the public sector um, all over. And so maybe you could expand on that. What um, is is this just part of your um, global nature? Um, uh, is how did this come about? And 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 it seems like this is something that is very important to you. So you've definitely um, you've you've definitely put resources and time into into maintaining those relationships. So maybe you can just expand a little bit on that. Sure. So I talked about this strengths finder assessment that I give in my class, and I took that myself. And one of my top strengths is learner. And by nature, I like to learn. I like to learn about new things. It could be something in academics. It could be like learning to play the drums, which I've started to do. And so I just like to learn uh, by nature. And how do you learn? Well, you talk with other people. You see what they're doing. You, You learn from them. And... All these connections that you've talked about, Seth, they, they, they have really expanded my view of plant improvement in the global context. With industry, for example, the industry, they've provided me with access to resources and data sets to allow me and my students to investigate questions that we could have never investigated if we were limited to doing our experiment in, say, two locations in two years. I mean, that there's a lot of value to that. And we do that type of experiment. But again, it just broadens the possibility of what we do. And then talking to or making, building bridges or connections with colleagues uh, in Europe uh, and other places around the world. Again, that has expanded the way of my thinking of how breeding is in different species, how it's different in corn, uh, what might be some uh, cultural aspects that would make plant improvement different in the U.S. and another place around the world. And so to me, that has been a great joy of being in the academe is this this, uh, capacity and the opportunity to learn, to pursue our science, to learn new things, to see what's out there in the horizon, and in a way make that in some way our own by seeing, okay, I'm going to put myself here, and given all these that I'm observing, what can I contribute uh, to the broader field? And I'd like to end, if I could, with by sharing a quote, again, going back to my graduate school days, that, that I remember from my PH, PhD advisor's office. And the quote uh, says the following. In times of change, learners inherit the earth, but the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. And I think that is so true, that the world around us is changing so much. And if we consider ourselves as learned, that we've learned everything we can, 
we would find ourselves as experts to function in a world that would no lo- that no longer exists. And so you and I, we need all of us need to keep learning about new things and be able to function well and contribute to society that would be different today and tomorrow from what it was yesterday. Well, clearly you're um, you're living your you're you've been living this this quote. Um, uh, you are certainly a learner and you're a, a leader for us all, um, an example. So we really really appreciate you coming in today, uh, Rex. Um, we uh, this has been a really fun conversation. I can uh, I th- these conversations that lead on to other questions are the my my favorite shows that we do. So I've I have several other ideas for thinking about the future. I think you're. You're one of these people that can help us think about the future. Maybe we, maybe for those of us that are learned, um, maybe you can help us think about uh, some things for the future to, to consider. So uh, with that, I think Dave can wrap it up. Well, we certainly appreciate, again, taking time to visit with uh, Seth and myself here uh, as we get into 2024. So let's hope that, you know, 2023 and 2024 keeps on being as productive as they have been in the past. And it certainly sounds like, uh, you have an, an additional opportunities for yourself and for your program and graduate students to keep on learning. And I think that's, that's really the take-home uh, message. So, uh, again, this has been uh, Dave Nikolai with the University of Minnesota uh, podcast, Minnesota Cropcast, uh, along with my host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension Soybean Specialist. And our guest today has been uh, Dr. Rex Medardo. Uh, he is professor and endowed chair at the in corn breeding and genetics at the University of Minnesota Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics. And thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.